Uh, joining me now is Angus Dale-Jones. Angus is a uh, consultant to the financial services industry and he's been appointed the chairman of the Code Working Group. Welcome, Angus. Thank you for joining us. Tell me, um, getting on the Code Working Group, that's something you obviously put your hand up for? Yes. So there was an application process and um, I was lucky enough to get the chairman role, yes. Yeah. Did you, um, you applied yourself or were you nominated? Or? Uh, I applied myself. Yeah, yeah. And, and what was your interest in getting involved in it? Well, this is an industry that I've been closely associated with for a while and mm. um, if, if you like it's a continuation of some of the work that I'd done when I was at the Securities Commission as it was then and also as a consultant since then. I feel passionately about this industry and I thought this is a way that I could yeah. continue to help. So so one of the things that is quite interesting is you know we've had the Code Committee which has provided a set of rules if you like for AFAs mm. up until now. When we go into this next stage, this this code, which is going to be basically the Bible, which advisors have to um, act by, is going to appeal to, uh, apply to everyone, isn't it? So, so how engaged do you think you know RFAs are in this this space at the moment? Well, we've actually got um, two codes, if you, you like, yeah. in parallel. There's a transitional period where mm. the code committee that currently exists mm. and the code that currently exists continues to apply. So that applies to AFAs and. RFAs at the moment, if they want to think about how they practice, can still look to the existing code to get some good ideas. The Code Working Group is a process to set up a new code, and the difference will be that that new code will apply not just to AFAs, but to all financial advisors. So can all the people who are outside of the code at the moment, should they look to what AFAs have to do and say, oh, this is going to be you know, the minimum that's required? I think it's useful for them to use that as a starting point to think about what code standards look like. Uh, some requirements of the code might not apply at all to them, but in terms of some subject headings to think about, it's a good starting place. Yeah. So one of the biggest issues which has come up is there's been a lot of criticism of the makeup of the committee and the fact that there's no practical experience on it in terms of, you know, advisors into a on a day-to-day, -day, you know, face-to-face -face client meeting basis. What's your answer to that? Well, I think I'm probably the least relevant person to ask that question. I applied on the basis that it would be a committee chosen by the minister on advice from MB, the ministry, um, and that I would work with that that committee. And I've got to say. From a chair point of view, I've got a team of really skilled people on the committee, but better than that, we've, we've got to make sure in our consultation process that we're fully engaged with the financial advice community. I understand completely that that's different from having financial advisors on the committee, but judge us on our transparency and judge us on how engaged we are with financial advisors. So did you know that you were going to be the chairman? I had no idea that I was going to be the chairman. Oh, okay, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so did you have any input into the makeup of the group? None whatsoever. So you basically yes. got, got yes. the I, email and I, said... I, 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 in fact, less than 24 hours before everybody heard, um, I, I was told who the other... And so what was your initial reaction when you saw the group and there weren't practising advisors there? Look, I didn't uh, have any expectations of who should be on the committee. What I like about the group is that it'll help us tap into parts of financial services that the current code has not needed to think about. Yeah, but then you look at the group and there's not a lot of people involved in the mortgage space, for instance, like that, and you sort of wonder how you're going to fill those holes. We need so much input through consultation, and I can see that that is 
uh, sidestepping your, your, your question, remember the working group is, if you like, a catalyst. It is there to make sure that we ask the right questions in consultation and distill those, those, those questions. Look, don't, don't you have a fundamental issue in the fact that we've had so much change going on that people are just so sick of consultation that you know, at some stage they're just going to say, you know, we just got to get on and run our businesses? Well, I think that's why we have to look closely at the work that has been done over the last eight years. There's been heaps of consultation on what a good set of standards for advisors look like, and that's been done in the context of an occupational code for authorised financial advisors. Mm. Now we broaden into what is a service code for the giving of financial advice. And so it applies to many more people, people in organisations, uh, people who are using digital advice or digitally assisted advice, and it's stretching some of those concepts yeah. to this broader audience, not so much drowning them in consultation yeah. as making sure that we adjust the thinking of the code. So, yeah, so just come, come back to that. So, so we're going from a, a code which is around an individual and advice to something which is more service-based? Yes, this is no longer an occupational code. So we're no longer, if you like, the current code committee is a little constrained because all that it can touch essentially yeah. is ethics, the advice process and the credentials, the competence of the advisor. Yeah. We can now look at the advice service as a whole and remember this legislation is now moving into the Conduct Act. Yeah. So it's much more about customer outcomes. It's looking at everything that's put into play to get a good customer outcome. So it might be that we don't need to do the heavy le leaning on the advice process in some circumstances that is currently done. So, so, so the, the, the occupational code, if you like, yeah. and, and what the AFAs have to do, is that just going to get chucked out and we start all over again? It is a fantastic starting point. We, we have a huge advantage over mm. what the existing code committee in a different form, different, some different people, um, eight years ago, they had nothing to start with other than looking at some ideas uh, from the industry and some ideas from overseas. Now we have a code that's been trialled, consulted on uh, in detail and by all accounts is working really well. This is about understanding that the context is now broader and making sure that what we come up with stretches into that context in a sensible way. Yeah. So this whole thing, you know, and one of the big debates, and you'll have seen it through the site, is around, you know, advice versus product versus mm. service. Is that part of your, have you got to thought that out? Well, I, I think our number one uh, sort of mantra is customer outcome. So I come back to the fact that we're now sitting in conduct legislation. And in fact, the, the nexus between product and advice is a close nexus in many, in many instances, and it's understanding how those work together to get a good customer outcome. That will drive how we shape the code. Yeah. So, and, and there's also been, you know, a lot of criticism that, you know, the big end of town has, has captured this whole process. What's your thought on that? Well, the process hasn't started yet. <laughs> Our appointments <laughs> I, I, are from... I think, I think they're saying that from the makeup of the committee. Yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah. Look, as I said earlier, all I can be accountable for is how we engage in consultation process. We've got some great minds around the table with the working group, um, and I'd, I'd like to be judged on how we engage with people. So how happy are you with the makeup of the group? In terms of having people with uh, good ideas, innovative input, um, being able to touch parts of industry who haven't previously needed to be involved in the code, I think it's a fantastic group of people. So you're happy with the makeup? I am very happy with the makeup.
Yeah, okay. So, and because and, you can actually second people too, can't you? You can have another two or you're allowed 11, I think you've got nine. That's a choice for the minister, not for me. But what we can do mm. is we, we can structure the consultation process mm. in any way that we want. So we can find any mechanism for including advisors. And it is really important that mortgage advisors, um, insurance advisors, people who haven't been directly touched by the AFA code are fully involved in expanding this to a context that works well mm. for them. So, um, and just, you know, how, how engaged have you been with the minister on this? Have, has there been much? Well, uh, I was an applicant for a job yeah. and I was, I was you got cho that. chosen. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, now, now the ball is handed over to us and yeah. we, we run with that ball over, over the next 10 to 12 months. Uh, so there's also, you know, there's a really interesting thing because I think you came to New Zealand originally from ASIC and, yes. and you came in a role which was helping to set up the Financial Advisors mm. Act and you were a regulator yes. and now you're on this other yeah. side. Is, does that sort of, does that say anything that the regulator's taking over this process or? Well, the, the, the last time I wore a regulator hat was in early 2011, so I've had Quite a bit of ah, exposure okay, it might, to it might the, still be the ingrained art, art. in your. <laughs> well, there there are aspects of being a regulator that stay ingrained, but I think the central aspect is a behavioural one. It's trying to work with people to uh, come up with behaviours that benefit everybody, that benefit advisors, so that you know some of the things that give them headaches are, are listened to mm, and responded mm. to constructively, but also that benefit uh, customers and consumers. Yeah, oh, excellent. Look, thank you very much for your time, Angus. And, and look, we, we, we look forward to keeping in touch with the work you're doing and, and uh, helping to get people engaged in the process. So thank I'd, you. I'd be delighted. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Joining me now is Dr. Philip M. Randall. Um, Randall, as he's called, has come out from America for the uh, the National Advisors Conference, and and it's his, uh, it's a twenty year retrospective for him because the last time he was here was uh, twenty years ago, which was about when the Sky City was opened, where the conference is. So there's a lot of little ironies in there. Yeah. Um, I'll let Philip introduce himself because he has a pretty pretty big title. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you do and what you're going to talk about? Well, in terms of my everyday activity, I am the managing partner of. Um, the Thorndike Group, which is a human resource capital consultancy mm -hmm. uh, involved in um, individual and organizational effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, however, in addition to that, I think it's important to note that you know, I'm a professor uh, at the uh, Capella University, and um, I think what is relevant uh, for my time here this 20, after 20 years is that I'm the board member of the Learn Long Institute of Education mm -hmm. and Research, mm -hmm. which is very germane to this whole topic around life planning, whole life planning, and the issue of um, uh, the older worker. Mm -hmm. And and so with your you know with the twenty year time period since you were last here, you're going to sort of look at where we were then and where we've got to now, and and, and your observations of, of where we're going. Yes, yeah. uh, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the sort of, what, what, what are your key little stories you've got there about where we're going? Well, in terms of where we're going, we're entering a period which I characterize as a disruptive period. Mm -hmm. And it is all predicated on the aspect of um, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. right? The manifestation and the growth of the humanoid, yeah. uh, right? And particularly in this, the area of um, financial planning, 
uh, it is key because today the financial planner actually utilizes uh, artificial intelligence in developing uh, portfolio recommendations. Uh, yeah. Behind the scenes, yeah. uh, that's what's going on. That's a really interesting thing because, you know, firstly, financial services is, is facing a, a huge amount of disruption, and I, I sometimes wonder if people are too scared to embrace what's going on. Mm. But then the other part is, you know, this artificial intelligence. And, and again, they, you know, to a lot of people, they'll sit there and they'll say, oh, what does that mean for me and my business? But to you, it's quite important. Yes. Well, the key aspect of it is that as a uh, prospective client, mm. um, what are they looking for in, when they're engaging a, a consultant of services? Mm -hmm. Three things. Mm -hmm. One is good judgment. Mm -hmm. The second one is skills to do what is needed, mm -hmm. and third is empathy. And, and so at this particular juncture, what is happening in terms of artificial intelligence or ro the robot or the avatar, however you want to talk mm. about it or describe it, is that they can now do, at the beck and call of the human, yeah. exercise good judgment, mm -hmm. and they obviously have good skills. Yep, so right, it's right. Uh, empathy. Yeah. But, but they have not been able, as of yet, to capture the ability to demonstrate empathy. So that's about the advisor having the relationship and the empathy with their clients? That's exactly right. Yeah. That's what the human has. The advisor obviously is a human, is building a relationship uh, predicated on trust. And trust is all a manifestation of a relationship that is critical for success, meaning that. Yeah. Um, so when you were here 20 years ago, my guess is that financial advisors and particularly investment advisors were very much focused on the skill and you know the things like being asset allocators and fund selectors. <laughs> but now they're realizing that the the value add to the relationship is there is actually their relationship and and the empathy they have with their clients is that how you would have that, seen it? That is clearly the case. Um, 20 years ago, I was advocating a model of whole person planning uh, based on criticality of the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I would say here and now, uh, practically every uh, advisor would have heard this a hundred times. Yeah. Uh, but um, the clarion or the call of action mm -hmm. that I think is important in this particular um, conference is, so what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Uh, and what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah, well, the hope yeah. is that they're going to see the necessity mm -hmm. of creating a relationship uh, and doing so through the act of nourishing mm. the relationship. Mm -hmm. Now, understanding that um, relationships will really be built based on the following. Understanding this aspect that the more you know about me, mm. the more responsible for me you become. Mm -hmm. So as a result, uh, if you understand that psychology, you would then say, well, what I need to do in order to build a relationship is to share with the client mm -hmm as much about me as possible, and then to learn from the client as much about him or her as possible. So that's quite interesting. So it's about the advisor really opening up who they are to their client. And yeah, see, that's probably quite challenging for some of them. Well, indeed. Yeah. Right, right. If, if for the most part you've been very transactional mm. and, for the, and, and, and opaque in your yeah. transaction, mm. then you're not going to be able to build a, a relationship. Mm. And when I talk about relationships, I, I, I try to translate it for everyday people. It's like uh, you're dating. 
for yeah. example. <laughs> and so if you're dating and you're trying to build a relationship, the relationship that you're trying to get to is one of intimacy. Mm -hmm. That means you need to be able to know the person yeah. well enough to meet their unexpressed needs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Because yeah. everybody's going to try to meet the needs yeah, where yeah. they say they have. Mm. Right. But the differentiation in the marketplace will be such there are those who can create a relationship that's intimate enough so that I know what you need before you say it. So do you think many financial planners would be doing that? Well, at this particular time, I don't think that many are doing that, but there are niches. Mm. And um, yeah. the niches have shown where they have been able to grow their business through this mm. investment. Mm -hmm. Investment in an interest in the individual yeah. in terms of what is it that they're trying to achieve. Fundamentally understa fundamental understanding is how does your client spend the most of their time? Mm -hmm. Well, work, work yeah. is how most of us spend mm -hmm. the major portion of our time. Yeah. So work dictates much of everything. Mm -hmm. It gets us up in the morning, brings us home at night, tells us when to eat, and tells us when to sleep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So do there's no, there's no quick or easy way to build that relationship and that empathy and that trust is there. It's a, it's a, it's a long-term project. Well, yes. I would suggest that I would approach it as a quick and easy. I do expect that it would be a long-term engagement mm -hmm. that you're working toward. But it starts out with asking the individual about them, mm -hmm. sharing to the, with the individual about you. Yeah. So it's right. not just doing a risk profile questionnaire and saying, here's what you want. It's actually... Something that, that's much, right. Yeah. Well, 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 in the business, we call it a structured interview, mm -hmm. meaning that you, you have already predetermined the questions, mm -hmm. and you ask the question and you listen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And the key to this is the, the, the nature gave us two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much. And that's the idea. <laughs> I, might, I might try that on my children. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. right, right. Ah, yeah. But it's interesting. Does it, does it limit how, much, how many clients an advisor can have? Well, well, that, you know, what you have, it used to be a case where I need to make a lot of sales. Yeah. Well, what, what is emerging uh, in your culture here is mm. this idea of fee base, mm. right? So uh, they have time mm. because the interaction, the engagement is based on the fee. Yeah. Right. So they have time to develop that relationship. Mm. And the model that I use in order to even create this discussion is old private banking. Mm -hmm. Well, private banking mm -hmm. was where they actually, you actually had a banker, although it wasn't involved in banking as we know it today, mm -hmm. but it was called the private banker. That person had a relationship with you and for generations mm -hmm. in given families. Mm -hmm. And what did they do? Not only did they manage your money, as it were, yeah. but they also manage the relationship with your physician, manage the relationship yeah. with your children to their education. They were always there um, supporting yeah. you. So are we sort of going full circle? I hope. Yeah, <laughs> back to, back to the, the old way of doing things. That is my appeal. Yeah. Oh, look, that's, that's fascinating. It's going to be really interesting um, to listen to you at conference. And look, mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time today, um, which you've generously given to us to come down here and, and film this. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, it's yeah. a pleasure. And it's great to see you back in the country after 20 years. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Happy to be here. Yeah. Cool. Right, right, thank right. you very much. Thank you. Cheers. So next up, we've got Naomi Ballantyne from Partners Life. Naomi's the uh, Managing Director, and today we're going to talk about um, 
advisor businesses and, and, and getting them ready for the future, plus a little bit of an update on their upcoming roadshow. Welcome, Naomi, and thanks, thanks. thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, financial advisors have got this big regulation change coming up and they've got to get their businesses ready for licensing. How well prepared do you think they are at the moment? Um, I think it's quite difficult to be prepared because a lot of the detail is still completely unknown. But you can't sit there and not do anything, you can you? You can't, you're right. And I think the detail is not necessarily the thing that will get you a licence, which is, I think, something that a lot of them are not really thinking through. Mm. With any regulated industry, we regulated, mm, mm. Um, and relatively recently, mm. I would have to say, um, there's some things that regulators look at to licence mm. people in the industry to determine whether they are a... Uh, an entity or a person that mm. deserves a licence. Mm. Um, and that is much wider than the detail of of the product that you sell or the way in which you do your job. So um, I think that there's quite a lot that people can do now to make sure they are seen as a licensed. So, so what sort of things should a risk, <coughs> no, excuse me, a risk advisor be thinking about you know, that they can do now so that they're starting to get ready? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of really basic things that any regulator is looking for. One is, are you financially viable business uh, is number one, right? Um, so You'd hope that most insurance advisors are. Absolutely, but you need to have accounts that demonstrate that, right? Yeah, you need yeah. to be able to demonstrate that you have a business that, you know, that you can that you can take a set of accounts and show someone and say, look, here's, here's my profit and loss over the last X yeah. number of years, etc." So I think yeah. that's actually going to be quite an interesting challenge See, but that's for some that, people. To me, that's just the basic thing you do running a business, isn't it? It should be, but... Yeah. Financially viable is not just having a set of accounts. But yeah. Yeah, it's having a business mm. that you can see is going to be a robust going concern. Yeah, okay. Um, so what other things should they be thinking about? So um, got to have accounts and be viable? Yeah, and I think fit and proper is interesting. So some brokers practices when there's only you, it's relatively easy to demonstrate, maybe, to demonstrate mm. that you're fit and yeah. proper, that you haven't had a criminal conviction and you haven't mm. you know, been charged with fraud or um, you know, run away with people's money, etc. But if you're responsible for other people, if you have a slightly bigger business and you have a board of directors, for mm. example, then it's really important that that board of directors actually has the wherewithal yeah. or the capability of taking the liability that directors take. Yeah. And, and driving the business mm. forward. So the fit and proper directors that have, there's mm. a reason for them to be on the board of a financial services organisation that adds value to the consumer mm. at the and, end of the And day. how about their qualifications and their professional development? Is that yeah. something else? Absolutely it is. Mm. And I think there's an argument saying we don't know what the qualifications are going to be required, but I can absolutely guarantee you that there are no qualifications that will be wasted yeah, yeah. Uh, because learning is the really important part of that too. Um, and so even if you don't know in the end what the qualification is going to be, doing some study now that is in line with the industry that you're in yeah. um, won't be wasted and might help with being able to demonstrate you're a fit and proper person. So, I uh, yeah. don't know if you know the answer, but, you know, with insurance advisors, where do you, do you think many of them have, like, tertiary qualifications and level five certificates or anything like that? Not many. Not many. Um, those are two different qualifications. Yes, there. yes, yeah. I, And I would say there's probably a bigger group of younger ones that have tertiary qualifications in any case. But the older ones... That's right, yeah. um, that's right. Um, and in terms of level five, I don't think that there's many. Um, but the, and there's few. no reason why you can't do that or but start level five down that is, path now. You know, as as uh, Fred Dodd says at the IFA, you know, kindergarten teachers have to have level seven, um, yeah. you know, which I always think is quite a good way to um, yeah. of, of, of of demonstrating that level five is not particularly high. Um, 
other things that they need to do. So, you know, I think one of the things is thinking about whether they want to be an advisor or what licensed entity they want to belong to and, and, and also what the groups are going to do around their members. Yeah, and I think that's a really difficult question mm. for a lot of them as well because you don't know how much it's going to cost for an individual to get a licence. So you may think that you want to be licensed on mm. your own and you would have to say logically getting a licence for yourself would be a lot easier than getting a license where you have to demonstrate you can control other people, yeah. right? Um, uh, but mm -hmm. if the cost of that is uh, the only way it can be born mm. is with scale, mm. then that cuts that then conversation you're actually have to out go completely. And to, That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. But I also think it's interesting because you know, um, belonging to the, the dealer groups, the aggregation yes. groups, it's certainly you know I think one thing which is clear is it's going to get much more expensive. To, yes. to and those groups are actually going to have to do a lot more about they can't just be aggregating for commission, they actually have to be delivering real services now. Do you, what are your views on a sort of a shake up there? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, they, I guess they have a choice, they can become licensed entities, mm. um, in which case they're gonna have to be selective about the people um, that they but, have But if they do them. that, I mean, a lot of the people who are members will not be members any longer, will they? Well, that's what I'm saying. They yeah. will probably have to be quite selective about, because you take liability on board for yeah. for the people that you yeah, have yeah. under your license so mm. you've got to be comfortable that that liability is not going to swamp you or mm. that you can demonstrate you've got the wherewithal to fund yeah. the liability in the event that there is a, an issue so i think if if any of them decide to become uh, licensed entities, they'll get smaller before they get bigger. Um, and I also think that they have to invest quite a lot of money in systems and processes to control the outcomes for the consumers that they are now liable for yeah. um, in terms of the advice. If they choose not to become licensed entities and they choose to be service providers mm. to licensed entities, then they're going to have to really consolidate on that service. Mm -hmm. um, and it stops being about members and becomes a service that's offered to the industry for a fee. So there's a real change. It's not just growing your membership for the Absolutely. sake of growing it, it's actually, you know, having a group you can actually control and, and yes. manage. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be big changes. Anything else in that space they should be thinking about? Um I think documenting mm -hmm. what you do. Even if you think what you do will change with licensing, it's much easier to change it and redocument it when you already know what Watch, it yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people think they have a system or a process. What they mean is they do something similar all the time. Yeah. What they don't have is if someone was to come into my business, mm. I could demonstrate to them with a document that says every time I go and find a client, I do this. Mm. Yeah, mm. this is how I use the system and processes. This is how I deliver my advice. Even if there wasn't regulation, yeah. that's the thing you have to sell, yeah. right? Because if you're, for an example, an insurance advisor mm. at the moment and you don't have documented processes, no one other than another insurance advisor can buy your client base yeah, off yeah. you and all they're buying is a client base. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you have a business that someone can come in and go, I can turn the key and run this mm. business, then you've got something that's more of more value. You have more buyers, more competition. Yeah. Well, um, look, that and, and that, that's a massive thing that they actually have to start to do. I, I spoke to one of the banks recently and the person who ran their third-party distribution said there that in the mortgage space, some of their top writers don't even have a CRM system. And I'm sitting there going, you know, how can you do that in this day and age? I mean, it just can't be sustainable. Yeah. So we have a lot of conversation around regulation is going to force people yeah. to do some things. You kind of go, but hang on a minute, a good should, business looks like we, this anyway. Should be doing yeah. it anyway. Exactly right. It's exactly right, especially one that um, wants to scale up, yeah. right? You, you need the shoulders or the infrastructure to, to build on, mm. otherwise you just fall over. You just throw volume yeah, and yeah. It, ultimately it falls over. Yeah, so um, I think licensed really, really, yeah. <laughs> if I could use another word, is, is 
a, running a viable business mm, mm. Um, that you can demonstrate to others as a viable business yeah. is a significant step towards um so do you think companies ready? like yourselves are going to step up and help these guys to do it or are they have to going to get off their butts and do it themselves um i think we've obviously got a vested interest in having a robust advice distribution mm. network and 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 for me that's always been an independent advice distribution network mm. because i truly believe that clients being given choice mm. and and having an advocate that can um, hold a life insurance company to account either with its products in terms mm. of what it's selling or at claim time in terms of the decisions that it's making is the best answer for a client if the industry is delivering the best answer for a client that's good for the industry yes, we, yeah. we, we succeed right so mm. that's the reason for me being so focused on independent advisors so we need a robust independent advice channel mm. Mm. going forward um, so we we will support people who are building the infrastructure to enable that to happen so it's becoming more of a partnership type thing I guess I guess yeah. so yeah yeah um, and quickly just you know um, replacement business you yeah. know is any update on where we're going there or if the FMA is sort of going to come out with guidelines or, or what's happening in the I, market I hope so mm. I mean I've, I've spent a lot of time and effort with um, the officials talking through the risk to the consumer of replacement business, but also the value mm -hmm. to the consumer in replacement mm. business. And, and um, you know, in terms of trying to identify truly what the problem is, because you hear a lot of people talking oh. about churn and they're often life companies that are losing business. Yes. Yeah, and so their argument is it's not fair, I've paid commission for mm. that, etc. Mm. and I go, but if your product's no good, mm. that's your fault and the client mm. should be moved. Mm. There's an awful lot of advisors who move clients when it's not in the client's best interest. Are there or, a lot who do that? I think there are. And the really interesting thing I would say to you, Philip, and the thing that I've most struggled with in all of my career is when people talk about churn and the FMA does it too, they go, that advisor is rolling their book from one company to mm. another. And there's very little of that. Mm. Right? Well, it's actually, for example, we have a lot of advisors who give us 100%, close to 100% of their business because they believe for most clients we're the right answer. Mm. And our product ratings support that. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so, but then when they come across a client that someone else sold for us, they may sell that client mm. something else yes, yeah. and roll them out. And I don't know how you live with yourself um, mm. if you do that or how you justify that. Mm. If mm. you've sold all these people this product but everyone you find that isn't one of yours that's in that product you move, right? Okay, so, yeah. and it won't only be us, mm. it'll be other companies that also have that issue. That's the, that's the problem, mm, mm. right? So replacement business in itself is not the problem, it's the reason for the replacement it's the, it's business the and the risk to the client in doing that. So, so I, I hope that we come out with some guidelines that say, here's the process you have to follow if you're gonna give mm, replacement mm, advice. Mm, mm, mm. And the process will cut out the opportunistic people who are just rolling it because yeah. it's too much like hard work mm. and too much effectively liability mm. on their part to do it. Mm. Mm. It should be paid commission if you do the right job, yes, right? Yeah. but then you should do the right job. And so I've always been about the process. Yeah. Um, we've got an advice process, you need a replacement process, it's yeah. even more robust because mm. there's more to lose. Absolutely. Client, right? And and do you think do you think the officials and the regulators and stuff have got their heads around, you know, the well, issue? Well, I've had some really engaging conversations mm. with them, but it's been some time since then. And I don't know what's progressed yeah. since then to understand yeah. whether they've they've tackled that point. There'll be a lot of vested interest or not. Mm. Uh, oh, because look, if you've be, got a distribution channel that doesn't want to have to do that work because that's hard and expensive, yeah. then maybe you'd be arguing against that. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how who's winning in yeah. that argument. And, and finally, you've got a roadshow coming up soon. What's, what's, the, what's that about? 
Yeah, so the, the roadshow is trying to tackle the conversion rate from all the work that an advisor does to get an application through to a life insurance company and then all the work that we do to try and get yeah. it issued. Still about between 25 and 30% of those cases don't issue. So that's a lot of work mm. and a lot of clients that don't get cover when clearly the advisor had already done the work to convince them to take it. So this roadshow is about trying to educate advisors um, and give them some tools and some mm. ideas for how they might be able to get that stubborn yeah. 25 to 30% of clients across the line. Because it would make quite a big difference to everyone's business of that. Yeah, you don't have to sell an ex one yeah. more policy and you make 25% yeah. more and 25% and more clients get the cover that they need. Then yeah. that's got to be a good thing, yeah. right? Certainly, it sounds like something that people should be getting along to. Oh, thanks again for your time, so. Naomi, and it's, it's great to see you here. Thank thanks, you. Philip. Yeah, cheers. Okay.